call it what you will, the Karen Convoy, the Freedom Convoy, or Flutruck's Klan, the two-week occupation of downtown Ottawa has claimed one political life, that of Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole. He was ousted as leader of the party. Two-thirds of caucus voted to go in another direction. It will spawn a leadership race for the Tories. Can a new leader stop the party from shooting itself in the foot or unite all the views under the big blue tent? Hello and welcome to the Unpublished Cafe. I'm Ed Hand. The so-called Freedom Convoys turned downtown Ottawa on its head. It's also ignited similar protests at border crossings in Alberta, Manitoba, and Canada's busiest crossing to the U.S., the Ambassador Bridge in Windsor. And in just a few days, the interim Conservative leader, Candace Bergen, has flip-flopped from supporting the convoy to now telling them to go home. If you are a Conservative supporter, you might wonder what they'll say tomorrow because it seems to go back and forth. The Conservatives, they were disappointed in their performance in the last election and mumbled about new leadership that's been around since last September. Which direction will the party sail now? Our unpublished vote question asks you, can the Conservative Party of Canada be united? Yes, no, or unsure. You can log on and vote right now at unpublished.vote and have your voice heard. And coming up on the Unpublished Cafe, we'll chat with McLean's columnist Scott Gilmore, a self-described self-loathing Tory. As well, Frank Graves of Ecos Research will join us to talk about how populism has figured into the equation. And Laurie Turnbull of Dalhousie University stops by with a perspective from the grassroots. First, I'm pleased to be joined by Warren Kinsella, political, political commentator and former advisor to Prime Minister Jean Chrétien. And, and Warren, I guess we, uh, we have no more an example of uh, how splintered the Conservative Party is when this morning we have Pierre Polyev, uh, federal leader, liberal or conservative leadership uh, leader at this point, um, coming out in support of the truckers, yet Doug Ford in Ontario is telling them the state of emergencies under, it's been launched and, you know, he's willing to throw them in jail. Yeah, you could not get more of a difference, Ed. You're absolutely right. There's Pierre Polyev, the supposed leadership leader, saying that he's proud of these truckers and that he stands with them. Those are quotes. And then you have Doug Ford, on Friday morning saying that he considers what they are doing illegal and then he's going to throw them in jail and give them a hundred thousand dollar fine if they don't stop. There could not be more clear evidence in my opinion that these two parties are not connected in any way shape or form but I, I, I question if the federal Tories now the post Aaron O'Toole Tories are connected to reality at all because they are completely out of sync uh, with what Canadians think about what's going on in Ottawa and Windsor and Manitoba and Coots, Alberta. Like they just, uh, I, they're completely acting contrary to what public opinion is and their own party. Is the Conservative Party really two parties? I think so. It feels like that. As you know, I'm an old guy. Um, mm -hmm. So I was on the Hill, you know, when dinosaurs roamed and, uh, and I was there working uh, for Mr. Kretzian, uh, as you pointed out. I was a special assistant and uh, was there when the Conservative Party split in two. You know, the, the Reform Party, um, kind of angry Western populace, and then the Central Canadian, truly progressive Conservatives on the other side. And that split uh, lasted a decade until Prime Minister Harper brought them together again and he won. And um, it really feels to me like that is happening again. And it, it's not just on the, the trucker thing. Um, it's just been, I think it's been coming for some time. And if Polyev is the leader, I think it'll just hasten the process. How long did you give O'Toole after the results of the last election? 
I didn't, I, honestly, uh, I knew he was in trouble, but I didn't think that, as you pointed out, two thirds of caucus would vote against him. Uh, and I think this is one of the problems with Michael Chong's Reform Act is, uh, you know, it sounds great and who's against reform and it's for democratic principles and so on. But personally, I have a problem with uh, members of a caucus uh, overruling, in a sense, what hundreds and thousands of party, political party members feel. You know, whether you like O'Toole or not, he was the, the winner as a consequence of the vote of party members. And then he was kicked out, you know, based upon uh, the vote of a few dozen caucus members. That seems to me to be pretty dangerous for them. I think it, it's actually going to affect the quality of the candidates for the leadership they're going to attract in the future, because you always have this sort of Damocles hanging over your head if you, you know, tick somebody off in the Tory caucus. Uh, do you feel the convoy was the last straw for O'Toole? It, yeah, I think it really hurt him quite a bit. He was really on the bubble. And, you know, like before they arrived, he took what I thought was the right position, uh, which is saying, I'm not going to meet with them because it, it looked very much like there were going to be some bad people, some bad apples showing up. Then he changed his mind 24 hours later and said he was going to meet with them. Then 24 hours later, he issued a press release condemning them for pissing on the war memorial and you know what they did to Terry Fox's statue and so on. So he was up and down like a toilet seat. And I think that was representative of the, you know, the entirety of his, his leadership. But I mean, you know, the problem continues. Candace Bergen, as you pointed out, was standing outside, handing out coffee and posing for selfies with the truckers and, you know, saying that there's good people on that side on the very day that some of the people on that side were waving around swastikas and Confederate flags. Like, and now she says they need to leave, leave town. And I think a lot of Tory voters could be forgiven for feeling that they've got whiplash because it's hard to figure out where their leadership stands. You know, uh, we, looking back on when the two parties united, and you mentioned this in your column from about a week ago, how Stephen Harper united them, but he did it through fear. <laughs> Would it work again? Well, two things, you know, I mean, there's two buttons in politics, as you know, there's hope and there's fear. And, uh, you know, my guy, Kretzian, was was pretty good at using the hope button, but he wasn't afraid to use the fear one when he needed to. He could be a tough customer, as he showed with the Schwinnigan handshake. Um, mm -hmm. and, but, you know, that that is what Harper did. And, um, you know, when people started to act up on gay marriage or abortion, boom, they were out. And uh, I, I actually tend to think that he was um, much more centrist than I think a lot of historians have depicted him in terms of the settlement on residential schools, spending like a drunken sailor during the global financial collapse and so on. What Shear uh, and to some extent O'Toole did is they moved away from the center. And, uh, you know, O'Toole saying he's going to take back Canada and he's a true blue conservative and the stuff that Shear did, like, it just doesn't work. You know, whether they like it or not, whether anybody likes it or not, the majority of Canadian voters are firmly in the center. You know, they tend to be kind of blue economically and, and red socially. And you need to kind of stick to the center of the road. And the Conservative Party uh, over the past couple of leaders has not done that. Are there any potential leaders in the Conservative Party that can unite all sides, or do you think it's going to be our way or the highway? They seem really angry. You know, the, the rank and file in the party really seem to be pissed off all the time. 
And they're always auditioning for the job they've already got, which is opposition. You know, they kind of remind me of Mulcair, or Polyev reminds me of Mulcair. You know, the press gallery in Ottawa would always go on about how Mulcair was great in question period, and he was tough in committee and all that kind of stuff. And, but, you know, you can't, couldn't remember the last time he smiled. Same thing with Polyev. Polyev reminds me of, you know, the guy that we all knew in high school in the physics lab, you know, who wore a pocket protector and didn't like girls. Like, he's that kind of a guy. And I think, you know, politics, as you know, better than me it's a people business and you got to like people and you got to look like you like people and you care about people and you know this angry stuff uh, i know it works with the tory base but i don't think it works with voters you know i i'm wondering what the difference is between what mulroney dealt with back in uh back in the 80s when uh, lucien bouchard left and formed the block and next thing you know they're the opposition party you know, the Reform Party probably had some ideas that, that that's what they were looking for, but couldn't get there. Any idea why one succeeded and one didn't? I think, well, I think a big problem Manning had um, is he didn't speak French, you know. So right off the top, like if you don't speak French uh, as a national federal leader, you're writing off at least 75 seats in the province of Quebec and a whole bunch of other seats in the rest of Canada where a francophone vote dominates. So that was, you know, one of the problems there. And of course, the Bloc and the Parts of Québécois, all they've done, you know, for the past generation since, you know, the Bloc came into being in 1990 is kind of have their eyes fixated on their own navel. So they don't have a national vision at all. Like the, the Conservative Party, to me, if they need to be successful, and I, and I say as a former Jean Chrétien assistant, I would like for them to be more successful. I think it's good for democracy that we have competing voices. It produces a better civil society. But right now, you know, uh, you know, they're split in all, into all these myriad different ways. And it's not good for them. And I don't think it's good for the country either. Warren, I want to thank you for joining us. Thank you, sir. Warren Kinsella is a political commentator and former advisor to Prime Minister Jean Chrétien. After the 2015 federal election, Stephen Harper was gone and Andrew Scheer came in to lead the party, but still lost to the Liberals in the next election. Now, back in 2017, Scott Gilmore launched a cross-country conversation about the, the Conservative Party, uh, where it was going and where it was headed. And Scott joins us now. And Scott, when you think back on, on that uh, sort of trip across the country, did many want to talk about the party's electoral shortcomings or did they just want to lay blame somewhere else? You know, that was one of the most interesting uh, moments in my life, because I'm not, while I'm somebody who's fascinated with politics, I've never wanted to participate necessarily in the hurly-burly. I have enough friends that I've seen on all sides of the political spectrum, um, you know, bang their head against that particular wall. And what experience I did not have was the retail end of politics, of, this, of talking one-on-one -on -one with voters. And what I learned when I went right across the country and these crowds got bigger and bigger and bigger, was that they weren't interested in talking about the things we talk about in Ottawa, which are necessarily policy or or the electoral uh, horse race or the you know the the tactics and strategies that different parties are using different times. They wanted to talk about ideas and feelings, you know, like mm. what what it was like to have a daughter who's gay, but feel like you belong to a party that doesn't support LGBTQ rights, or somebody whose job is suffering because of climate change. And trying to find a, a a place in the political spectrum where their beliefs and fears are are being addressed, and so there wasn't much talk, as you suggested, about who's the who's the best horse to get us across the the finish line fastest. 
it was all very, very personal. And, and frankly, I found it as a result, um, genuinely humbling because I follow politics like I follow football and with a bit of detachment. And for me, it's, it's, you know, there's a certain part of it is entertainment. Um, but for most of these people who took the time to come out and meet with me and, and, and to hear me speak or join these dinners, politics was very, very personal. It was something that, that, that they felt um, affected their lives personally. And so I felt like a bit of a charlatan, to be honest. Yeah, you know, we hear about the various camps within the Conservative Party. And, and, and you know, why can't they seem to unite? Well, that's an excellent question. Um, I think that they are irreconcilable differences uh, at the center, philosophical differences between these two camps. Um, that we have a, a very, the English language, the North American or, or Western European uh, use of the political spectrum being a, you know, a left to right, a linear line does not give us the necessary mental, um, uh, the mental space to realize that our political spectrum isn't just one dimensional. It's not just two dimensional. It's actually three dimensional, right? And that just because we have two groups of people who seem to believe in fiscal restraint doesn't necessarily mean they align on anything else. They're, 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 if you can understand, they, they, they stand elsewhere in that three-dimensional space. And so we think they're on the same side of the spectrum, but they're not. Um, and we, the parliamentary system has also prevented or made it more difficult, not as difficult as in the United States, but nonetheless makes it difficult for new parties to emerge and arrive and rise with a more nuanced view of things. So that's a long answer to a short question. Yeah, the alliance and the PCs formed to become one party with what they said back then was plenty of room in the, in the tent. Now, were they just kidding themselves? Yeah, I, I think so. I, I think I think a lot of that was motivated by a, a desperate um, need to, to, or a desperate desire to get reelected, um, to, to figure out how they can stop, they, they, can, they can bring, again, very rudimentary you know, uh, description, but, you know, one side of the spectrum together. Um, I, I, I don't think that there was much backroom conversations. And I, I say that having not participated in them at the time or only participated in them very superficially. But I don't think there were a lot of backroom conversations that were about, you know, uh, Adam Smith <laughs> and, and other political philosophers. It was um, it was all very tactical. How much does the rise of uh, the People's Party of Canada factor into the current leadership issue for the Conservatives? I think it. I think it's it's hugely, uh, or it's being seen as hugely important. Um, you know, there's a we all live in echo chambers. You do, I do. We 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 pretend that we don't. We pretend that we're getting information from all sorts of different um, places. Most of us live in, in some form of an echo chamber. And right now, the Conservative Party is living in an echo chamber where the Conservative leaders and decision makers are surrounded by political staffers who have a very partisan view of the world, who are consuming information from very, very partisan news sources, whether it's Rebel Media or uh, Fox News or you know some columnists in the National Post. And so in that very small little echo chamber, the PPC voices are, are, are very loud and, uh, and disproportionately loud. And so I think a lot of effort is going into trying to shore up and, and bring in those, that's part of the, of the potential base for this party. And not enough time is being spent looking at, you know, all the people who checked out of those echo chambers who nonetheless are not happy liberals. 
are not happy with the direction Canada is going would theoretically consider themselves to be conservative supporters if they could find a conservative leader who wasn't, you know, spending his time shouting memes in Parliament. I, I wonder if uh, perhaps it, we could have forecasted this in the future when Maxime Bernier was so close to winning uh, against Andrew Scheer. And that kind of tells you where the division was in the party, does it not? Yeah, Maxime Bernier is an interesting character. He's he, I've often thought of him as a slightly empty vessel, unlike or, you know, similar to some other prominent politicians in Canada these days, um, who was willing to fill himself with the voices of whoever was he, he thought would take him to to uh, over the finish line successfully. And so he's I think he's turned himself into an avatar of the extreme right. I'm not necessarily convinced he was that same person politically uh, during that leadership race, or maybe during that leadership race, he was willing to turn himself into an avatar of a slightly more moderate version of conservatism because he thought that's what he needed at the time. But um, honestly, I, I, it's hard to take him seriously. They're never going to, to win more than a handful of seats. They're extremely disorganized. He was able during the, the, um, the electoral or the, the leadership race in the Conservative Party to actually out fundraise everybody, but for some reason he was completely unable to replicate that uh, success when he went out on his own, which tells me that he probably lost a lot of his team uh, in the process. So, do the Conservatives go back to two parties? I think it's almost inevitable. Now, listen, I, I say that with a massive asterisk, which mm -hmm. is I have been wrong on every significant leadership question of the last 20 years. I, I never thought Jean Chrétien would, would, would become the, the leader of the party, never thought he'd be elected. Same with Harper, uh, you know, same with Trudeau. It goes on and on and on. I mean, really, whatever I'm about to say, your listeners should expect it to go in the other direction. So I think it is inevitable that it's going to be split into two different parties. It just, like I said, seems irreconcilable. And it does seem that um, that they're losing uh, a fight with history, that again and again and again, not just in Canada, the United States and elsewhere, the right side of the of the political spectrum is losing on every, whether it's on on, on gay rights, whether it's on uh, carbon tax or trade decisions or things like that. It's just again and again, and they're losing. And that's because the population, the society is moving in one direction while the Conservative Party is is trying to pull it back. And that's a struggle you're never going to win. And so I think that we're probably going to be facing another electoral defeat. And if it's a cataclysmic one, then yes, I suspect there'll be a splinter. God, I want to thank you for joining us. Always, always a pleasure. Scott Gilmore is a columnist with McLean's Magazine. Populism has factored heavily into this convoy and Canadian politics. It's something that's been watched closely by Frank Graves of Ecos Research. And, and he joins us now. And Frank, anyone following your Twitter feed would know about your concern about the rise of populism in Canada. Is it all on the right side of the political spectrum? Well, the, the, the hot activity right now is on the right side, but populism historically, which is unified by two features, one, a, a rejection of the elites, and second, a belief that power should be restored to the people, often happens to be my people, whatever your people is, tends to be. But that can be seen across it's ideologically thin there are expressions of populism on the left on the right uh and in the center in fact and sometimes populism can turn out very well you could argue that for example 
FDR and the New Deal was very much uh, rooted in a populist re response to the Great Depression and created the New Deal and the rise of the middle class. Other forms of populism as the type which uh, took hold in Europe around the same time saw the emergence of um, fascism and all the horrors that ensued. And that version of what some call authoritarian populism, and we prefer to call ordered populism, uh, was, was one of the best explanations that scholars who left Germany and tried to understand what had happened came up with. It, it had a very specific set of features which would become engaged under certain conditions, such as economic despair or hostility to outgroups or uh, sense of my, my group is losing position in society. It could kind of lay dormant for a long time, and then it got uh, dusted off, and people found that it fit uh, both Brexit and, um, and, and explained the emergence of Trump and his victory remarkably well. Uh, and, and, and we found that when we started using the same measures, which is a variation of what used to be called the F scale, which is the fascism scale that Adorno created, Asking simple questions about child rearing, such as when you raise a child, is it more important to stress obedience or creativity? Divides people pretty evenly. But when you put several of these indicators together, you find those who express an authoritarian or ordered outlook, which is normally fine. But under conditions that I sketched out before, such as a feeling of, of economic despair, a feeling that my status and identity are threatened, uh, cultural backlash, the values I believe in are no longer the dominant values. All of those things coalesce and those groups tend to get more sorted into a cohesive group and look for solutions from the strong man on a horse, for example. And that particular brand of populism, authoritarian or right-wing authoritarian populism, it really doesn't ever turn out well. It's, it either historically, the records have been either deep disappointment because nothing happened which is sort of what might be the case in the United States with Trump, or the more horrific expressions such as the rise of fascism in Europe in the 20th century. So I think we have to be mindful of it. And uh, we just want the, this particular iteration of uh, populism and uh, ordered populism seems to also be fueled by a new force, which is disinformation. And we see that as a really potent factor. So I think you'd find that all the people that, for example, were protesting uh, or occupying Ottawa, probably have really high levels of disinformation about the pandemic. For example, much more likely to think, you know, governments have been exaggerating deaths, that it's uh, something which will alter my DNA, it can make women fertile, and all those things. We find those types of points of view were very common in those groups and actually look identical to what we've seen in the surveying with the same indicators in the United States. So that's another layer of complexity. I wonder why is it gaining traction here, or or was it always here, but it was just sort of kept under the surface? No, it, that's a great question, and the answer is complex. And it isn't anything that happened yesterday or last week. Uh, the forces which have produced the rise of uh, this type of populism, not just in America, but also in in, in parts of the other parts of the Western world and in Canada are things which you trace back to decades of things. A decade, for example, I think one of the prime ingredients or motivators which shifted and moved us into this direction was the collapse of what some call shared prosperity or middle-class economics. In 
both Canada and the United States since the beginning of this century, uh, at the opening of the 20th century, about 70% of Americans and Canadians would locate themselves as self-identified members of the middle class. That's now uh, dropped under 50 in the United States, a little under 15 Canada's come up a bit, but you know, you get 60 million Americans falling out of the middle class in a similar portion in Canada, that, that caused a lot of restlessness. You'd also link that to other things like the economies of upper North America have been growing at a rate of maybe 1% in this uh, century. During that period of the rise of the middle class and that era, era of shared prosperity, the growth rates were more in the 6-7%, which was shared relatively equally. So you've had very tepid growth, which is being basically appropriated by a tiny fraction at the top. Throw it along with that, that some of those groups, and you think about truckers, for example, this is a group that, you know, would be very proud of their occupation in many cases, uh, but they would also sense that uh, both, as in many working in the carbon-based economy, that automated uh, uh, transport vehicles are probably going to be a reality in the next five to 10 years. The era of carbon-based economies, we don't know how long it's going to take, but it's, it's, it's in decline. So a sense that I've lost my place uh, and my source of identity, also coupled with, you know, the values I remember in that period, which might have been more imagined than real, where we were really, you know, enjoying sort of the dominance in society. They're no longer uh, that popular and they look like they're under threat as well. So those sorts of factors, cultural backlash, economic despair, hyper concentration of wealth at the top, They've been things that have been emerging over the past decade, but and, there, and that's why it's going to be difficult to put the genie back in the bottle. You know, do, do you feel populism fueled this uh, well current conservative leadership race, or was uh, what was going on with O'Toole a fait accompli? It was going to happen anyway. Well, I do think it's what fueled the current movements in the political in the in the conservative party and. In, in work that we've published uh, academically, we found that the, this ordered index was the best predictor of conservative vote, which it wouldn't have been, you know, 10 years ago. This is something new. And there's been a lot of sorting going on. For example, the difference between, let's say, say conservatives and liberal voters, uh, 12 years ago, uh, or 10, 10, year, 10 years ago, asking questions like, do you think there's too many visible minorities in the country? you would have got relatively similar numbers. Yes, there would have been more racial intolerance in the Conservatives, but it would have been, you know, 10 points higher. As we came out of the last election, those differences had jumped from 10% to 70%. So massive differences, which also opened up on things like trust in science or trust in government for that matter, or media. So those, it wasn't like liberals became that much more uh, 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 um, uh, tolerant and Conservatives became more racist. No, liberals that felt that way went to the conservatives and conservatives who felt uncomfortable with this new position went to the liberals and elsewhere. So what you end up with is, a, is the, the population sorted. Now, the, the conservative party, like the Republican Party in the United States, which has also seen a similar metamorphosis, the traditional Republican border of, of yore uh, was, you know, a suburban, college-educated, affluent uh, voter who believed in minimal government, individual freedoms, uh, you know, the, the, the deregulation, free trade. You could, that's got very little to do with the, the folks that were storming the Capitol a year ago. And we see the same kind of fissures opening up in the Conservative Party, uh, which were perhaps masked to some extent by the, the People's Party, which 
uh, you know, provided a more, you know, you know, a clearer, authentic version of this authoritarian populism. They faltered at election time uh, because they knew they weren't going to get any representation and because the Conservatives sensibly focused on them in the final weekend to say, you, uh, you're voting for Trudeau if you vote for Bernier and you're not going to get any representation anyway. But they're still out there in about 10%. And I would say that when we look at it, of the Conservative constituency, which is now about 30%, Half of them more like those people party kind of northern Trumpists than they do like the traditional status quo conservatives. Now, Mr. O'Toole tried uh, to uh, shift the, the party to the center in the lead up to the last election, and it, it worked really remarkably well until the fault lines within the party, which became vividly expressed on issues like guns and vaccines, were laid bare, and that narrowly cost them victory. But I think the Conservatives had two legitimate paths to victory. Uh, one would be to go to continue with the path that Mr. O'Toole had been on and try and capture some of those blue liberals and center voters who are fatigued with the liberals and Mr. Trudeau. But the other was to double down and with the, the, the more the uh, ordered populist side of the party. And that appears to be what's happened with the jettisoning of Mr. O'Toole. Mr. Poyev now, you know, serving coffee and donuts to the uh, to the protesters and clearly, you know, signaling. And I guess their bet there is that gives us about 25 percent of very emotionally engaged voters. Uh, we'll find another 10 percent. Remember, the, the, the yardstick for achieving political success in Canada is pretty modest these days. In our last poll, no party got over 30 percent. So you can actually form government as the liberals did with 31 percent. You know, back in the day, both Mulroney and and uh, Cretchen various times, even Martin before he uh, uh, before he went to the to the electorate, were in fifty percent range. That, that's that's just not available anymore. The the center is as hollowed. The political electorate is more polarized and fragmented than it's ever been. So you can find success with. Uh, I think what what Mr. Poyev and the Conservatives are are planning, and so we'll see. What would it take for the Conservative Party to unite under one leader, or do you see this maybe breaking up into two parties? I think if it, I think the only thing which has prevented it, and this is being simplistic, but the principal reason that it hasn't already broken up into two parties is the uh, first past the post electoral system, which is held in disdain by many who would prefer forms of proportional representation. But I would argue that if we had proportional representation, I'm agnostic, probably lean to thinking it's not a bad idea if you could figure out a, a version that might work. You would have seen the People's Party holding 10% of, this, of, of power in the last election, I believe. Uh, you, you would have also seen historically the Greens having up to 10% of parliament. So you would have seen a much more uh, of a boutique parliament, which you, you're far right, we got a place for you, on the far left, got a place for you. Uh, and with the center, uh, which traditionally is where Canadians have voted, really being having to seek uh, participation from other parts of the spectrum, as you see, for example, in Germany, Sweden, Italy, France, and, and other places. Frank, I want to thank you for joining us. It's been my pleasure. Frank Graves is the founder of Ecos Research. 
When you look at the candidate selection process for the Conservatives, there have been a number of more moderates have been left on the sideline for more vocal selections. Lori Turnbull is the director of the Department of Public Administration at Dalhousie University, and she joins us now. And Lori, first off, do you feel Aaron O'Toole's meeting with the truckers cemented his end? Um, that's a really interesting question, because it seemed to me that when things really started to turn for Aaron O'Toole and when the leadership review was was in motion and it was going to happen and he was kind of sending out these messages like, you know, let's keep the party together and that sort of thing. It seemed like you could trace back from election night when the support for him really started to tank. There was a sense that he could have won that election and he didn't. And people started immediately to think, you know, okay, when is this guy going to resign? When it like we, there's so many who didn't agree with his shift to to try to be more centrist, and so it seemed like from that perspective, it was you're just sort of waiting until the whole thing blows up. But now, when you look backward, I find it it's there's there's a sense that perhaps the the situation, the the meeting with the truckers, what's happening on Parliament Hill, may have caused some upset for him right in the sense and i'm not sure how he could have gotten that right because i think the party is quite divided on it now it looks like the part the people in the party who are quite sympathetic to the movement on parliament hill have have taken over right and have gotten quite um you know like candace bergen is is one of the people who has been demonstrably supportive of the protests and the activities on parliament hill and so there's a sense that um that side of the party maybe has taken on more control, more prominence, and Aaron O'Toole was just sort of up against it. Not to say that he didn't have accountability, he's the leader, but it seems like that there might have been a shift in that direction. Well, when we look back at his leadership, uh, you know, the rejection of Peter McKay against him, it, it, was that a signal of no desire to track back to the center? So I think there's, you know, it's potentially that, but it's also, it's also, a sign of how their system works with respect to choosing a leader. And so Peter McKay was first on the first ballot, but you could see as soon as it came up that he didn't have enough because as the uh, social conservative candidates dropped off, they lined up behind Aaron O'Toole. And so that's how he won on the third ballot. He wasn't the most popular candidate in, you know, in terms of first round choices. He was the person who the consensus was around. But that also has to do with the weighted system and how they choose their leader and the fact that every riding is worth 100 points. And so it's not necessarily reflective of the entire conservative movement or how the conservative movement is playing out in Canada. The way that they choose their leader is not necessarily designed to choose someone who is popular in the party writ large or is popular with Canadians. And so they put themselves at some disadvantage, I think. It is odd that Peter McKay was one of the people who insisted that this weighted, this point system, this equitable point system across ridings, he was the one who insisted on this, or one of the ones, and now it, it hasn't worked out in his favor. But I think, um, you know, that's it's one of the things that they're going to be looking at for their leadership selection process now. Is like if I I don't know um, that the party can afford necessarily if they want to be competitive in the next election, and they have a shot at forming government if Justin Trudeau is going to be asking for a fourth term, which is a lot. You know, if they can see this on the horizon, can they afford to run a party that's really, you know, leaning right? If there are going to be some liberal voters who, you know, are, are sort of not necessarily liberal voters, but, you know, people who have put their support with the, with Trudeau and the liberals for the past few elections and who are who have a, an understandable voter fatigue and are looking for somewhere place else to park their vote. 
you know, when we look at the the upheaval in the Conservative Party, you know, we've got two sides, the progressives, and then, you know, more the, more the hard side than anything else. I, I wonder, yeah, how much of the upheaval comes at the riding association level? Because, I, you know, it, in leading in the last couple of uh, elections, I, I've noticed that there's been a, a number of long-term candidates, long-time candidates who, who've been turfed for, for candidates that are a little more vocal, a little more on the right side of life. Yeah. And so like, it's interesting and sometimes not something that everybody is, is aware of, but yeah, what happens in terms of choosing that candidate at the riding association level, there's a lot of, you know, there, there's a lot of power there. And I don't mean power in, in a bad way. I just mean like, given how much power control decision-making is centralized in the office of the leader, even, you know, when it comes to things like, you know, what, what the campaign is going to look like, what the messaging is going to be, how you spread that out across the country, all of that decision-making is very centralized. Choosing the candidate is really one of the only things that a riding association can still do. It has to be approved by the leadership, but in terms of putting it like, you know, really being able to put a stamp on the party and having some control over what the party stands for and what, the, what kind of space it's taking up, candidate selection is really what riding associations have to hold on to. And so if riding associations are becoming more, you know, the people who are really engaging in the leadership at the local level are, are you know, that's, that's leaning more to the right, that will have a significant impact on what the party ends up standing for, I would think, because you're going to have people who, like, if the, the people who are in the party are really leaning, you know, to a more right, right-wing approach, a leader who is centrist is not going to have the support of caucus. You know, looking back, how did uh, a prime minister like Brian Mulroney um, able to keep all the, all, you know, all the members pretty well on the same page, able to get two majority elections out of it? Yeah, I, I was a different conservative party back then. That was that was decidedly and, you know, explicitly progressive conservative. And there was a strong um, like I think this this had a, a significant um lubricant effect it, there was a there were red tories in that caucus and there was a sense that government is doing something government is here to do something good there is a role for government in your life and there are some um i think to a large extent that that kind of helps to ma manage differences in the party there were differences in the party and mulrooney's coalition cracked you know like he mm. he yes he did form two big majority governments and the kinds of issues that were, that were, you know, at the forefront at the time, really the the vision of the country and the direction of the country and the constitutional, com, you know, that that arrangement between the provinces and the federal government, that stuff of high politics, I think, allowed him to build a coalition, right? That were that people were very focused on those sorts of issues of national unity, and they weren't as internally focused. They were focused on on you know what are the conservatives going to put up. In terms of a conversation of how to keep the country together they weren't navel gazing it didn't seem to me but when that approach didn't work out when he tried twice and you know quebec wasn't happy and the west was ticked off because he was trying too hard to make quebec happy when that coalition broke that that's what we see now right like we see you know there were block you know the block was born of that the reform party was born of that not entirely but you know, that was a contributing factor. And the progressive conservatives never recovered from that federally. 
Can the conservative movement survive with two different parties, say, you know, like an alliance and like the uh, the PCs? Um, I mean, I think you could imagine a scenario if the parties don't, if, if those two factions of the party really don't feel comfortable being, um, you know, in one umbrella, you could imagine a scenario where there are two parties on the right wing and they mostly vote together. Uh, they mostly, you know, support a lot of policies and, you know, could could do some some work to holding the government to account. It's just hard for them to become an alternative to government if they're split in half. And so would we find space for, um, you know, coalition politics in Canada? Would we be able to see the possibility that more than one party would form the government? So then you've got like kind of a right wing government as opposed to a, like a, a single party government. That would be a huge stretch for Canada. And it would be, you know, again, you're back to that space where you're dividing the right, making it much easier for the liberals to be the party that comes first. And that's not, you know, it's, it's the way we practice parliamentary government in Canada. There's lots of systems that use parliament that are completely embracing coalition and will let that, that play out between the parties. But we tend not to be like that. We tend to think that the party who comes first in seats is the one that forms the government. And so tr trying to do that cultural change would be really hard. Laurie, I want to thank you for joining us. Thank you, too. This is great. Laurie Turnbull is the director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. Our unpublished.vote question asks you, can the Conservative Party of Canada be united? Yes, no, or unsure. You can log on and vote right now at unpublished.vote. I want to thank our guests today on the Unpublished Cafe, Warren Kinsella, Scott Gilmore, Frank Graves, and Laurie Turnbull. And I want to thank you for watching the Unpublished Cafe. Stay safe. I'm at hand.